0: It was 1942, early part of 1942, and so America was still reeling from the aftershocks of the invasion of Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, and uh, the spirit of America was uh, sort of broken because of this vicious surprise attack that occurred, and everybody was really wondering are we going to be conquered? Is, are, the, are the Axis forces going to conquer the Allied forces? And so America really needed a boost in the arm. And Japan, on the other hand, was feeling quite confident uh, in their abilities toward victory. And so there was discussion about what could we do to sort of change that, to give, to give that morale boost to America, not just the soldiers, but all of America, the citizens, to feel better about this, and at the same time, to shake the confidence of the Japanese. And nobody knew exactly how to do that, because it would have been nice to just fly over and bomb Japan, but they were too far away. There were no friendly air bases anywhere within range to get a bomber in that area. And a fellow who was out watching bombers land at an airstrip on the East Coast, they had a they had an aircraft carrier outline painted on the runway so that jets could practice landing on the deck without there really being an aircraft carrier there and got the idea because he saw bombers, mid-range bombers, taking off in that same amount of space. And the thought was born that perhaps bombers could be loaded onto an aircraft carrier, though that had never been done before, flown over close enough that they could reach Japan and drop some bombs. And this became quite famous. You know it as Doolittle raid. Doolittle's Raid, named after the lieutenant colonel who led that raid, uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle. And uh, they put together this plan. I, I don't have time to go into all of the details about what they had to do to modify the planes and, and all of these things, but I want you to understand this. They chose the 17th Bombing Group of the Army Air Corps to be the ones to go on this mission. And they couldn't tell anybody what the mission was. It it was very secretive. So what they said was, we need some volunteers to go on a mission. It's going to be a very difficult mission. You probably won't come back. We can't guarantee that you'll come back. You have to consider this a suicide mission. But it is very significant to the war effort for America. And people stepped forward and volunteered for that unknown suicidal mission. The mission occurred on April 18th of 1942. Sixteen B-25 bombers were loaded onto the USS Hornet. The B-25 is a, is a mid-range bomber. You've seen one if you've ever been down to, uh, to uh, Mitchell Field. The, the, that plane is named after General Billy Mitchell. Um, down in Milwaukee, one of those planes with a twin tail on the back. That's the B-25 bomber. And so they had 16 of those, all they could fit on the aircraft carrier and still have room for a runway because they were 53 feet long and they were about 70 feet wide, and they weighed 35,000 pounds fully loaded. And they had a range of about 1,300 miles, and that's a significant number because they had to go a lot farther. So their mission, when the men were finally told what it was, was to load these mid-range bombers onto an aircraft carrier, even though they'd never been done before, They were to sneak then a naval fleet with that aircraft carrier, actually two carriers, into enemy-controlled waters, hopefully not be seen. Then they were going to launch the bombers from the carrier's flight deck. That had never been done before. They were going to fly without any fighter plane escorts, which wasn't wise. They were going to fly to a target that was too far away to get back from. They were going to drop bombs on Tokyo and some other critical targets and then hope they could make it to an airfield in China without running out of gas. And then somehow find their own way back. And Doolittle, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle, believed he would be court-martialed for this act because he knew he would lose every plane. And they were less than one year old. All went well in that raid until uh, the fleet, the naval fleet, was spotted by a Japanese patrol boat. And uh, they sunk the boat, but a radio warning had already gone out to the Japanese, letting them know that this fleet was approaching. They were still 200 miles short, Of where they needed to get to have any any hope of landing their planes. And they launched them anyway. You know, that group of airmen who stepped forward and said they would go were not the first in history to step forward to a calling. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. And I want to go through a few places in the Bible and show you some responses when people were called. So Genesis 22, starting right out at the beginning of the chapter, this is Abraham's calling. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, what does your Bible say? Here I am. He doesn't know what he's going to be asked to do. He's not going to, he's not going to like. This is actually when he is asked, he's asking uh, him to take his son Isaac to sacrifice. But when God calls him by name Abraham, Abraham responds, Here I am. Abraham was the same man who had responded to the call of God to go to leave his family, to go to a far country, away from his family, away from his friends, away from everything he knew, away from all of the securities he's had, to go to an unknown place, sort of a suicidal mission. I can't tell you everything that's going to happen, but just trust me and go. And, of course, he went. Ellen White says this about that original calling. It was no light test that was thus brought upon Abraham, no small sacrifice that was required of him. There were strong ties to bind him to his country, his kindred, and his home. But he did not hesitate to obey the call. He had no question to ask concerning the land of promise. Whether the soil was fertile, whether the climate was healthful, whether the country afforded agreeable surroundings and would afford opportunities for amassing wealth, God had spoken and his servant must obey. The happiest place on earth for him, for Abraham, was the place where God would have him to be. Ellen White says, Many are still tested, as was Abraham, but they do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens, and yet he calls them by the teachings of his word and the events of his providence. Flip over a couple of chapters with me to Genesis 31. We're dropping down a couple of generations here. Genesis chapter 31, verse 11, verses 11 through 13. We're now with Jacob. Jacob is... Abraham has gone to this land that God has called him to. And then Jacob, in order to find a wife, has gone back to where Abraham came from. So he's not over there anymore in this land that God has called him to. But that's what's happening here in verse 11, is God is calling him back. The angel of God spoke to me. He's relating it to someone else. Jacob says, the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all the rams and all these... Uh, speckled and streaked, and I want you to, uh, uh, to arise. I'm skipping ahead to verse 13. Arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. In other words, the land where you were born, the land that Abraham was called to. God calls Jacob by name, and Jacob says, what? Here I am. Genesis 37, just a few pages over. 37. A famous story. You young people remember this one. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph of many color fame. The coat of many color fame. And in verse 12 it says, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Or in your Bibles perhaps, here am I. Here I am. I'm reading from the New King James. And think about the significance of this. Jacob, acting under the influence of God, asks Joseph, his son, his beloved son, to go away. Joseph responds very humbly, here I am. And think what we know, because we know the rest of the story about the significance of that. He's being called a way where he's going to be taken captive. He's going to become a sold slave. He's going to end up in prison. And then he's going to become a commander in Egypt and save many, many people. Starts out with a simple call and the response. Here I am. Genesis 37. Oops, I'm sorry, that's the one we just did. Genesis 46, still in the same book. Genesis 46, I am looking at verses 1 and 2. Think about the geography again. Abraham has left his home and his family, has gone to the land he was called to. Jacob left that and went back With Laban and got a wife. Actually got a couple of wives. And then God called him back to the land that he had called Abraham to. Joseph had to leave that land in slavery and go to Egypt. And eventually, of course... All of the family is going to join him in Egypt, and here's where that happens. In chapter 46, verses one and two, Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac, and God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, "Jacob, Jacob," And he said, "Here I am." And he said, "I'm the God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. He's leaving the place that his family has been called to, and he 's going back to the foreign place, and God says, "Don't worry about it, I'm in control." Jacob says, "Here I am," and he humbly follows. Well, now let's follow that same storyline as we go into the next book, Exodus, chapter four. I'm sorry, chapter three. Do you suppose, in the midst of all this, people might get confused as to where they're supposed to be? God's calling them over here, then they're going back over here. Then they're calling them back over here, then they're going back over here. In chapter three, verse one. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He's already left uh, Pharaoh and his uh, his, uh, influences there. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We know this story well. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a what? In a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he, being Moses, looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside. I am going to check this out. While the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And Moses receives his instructions to take those people back to the promised land. Back and forth they go. God calling them each time by His will. And each time, someone is willing to step forward and say, Here I am. And this time, God calls them to care for His people and lead them back to the promised land. And so they do. And they go there, and they have their victories and their defeats. And we know that story well. And so the children of Israel are now in their land, in the promised land, living there. And God is using... Uh, prophet judges to lead his people. And we know well the story in 1 Samuel when that little boy who has been dedicated to the temple under the tutelage of Eli is called by God in the night and God calls him Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel, thinking that it's Eli, runs to Eli and says what? Here I am, little boy, here I am, willing to serve, willing to answer, willing to go of course, we know that story well, that eventually Eli tells him, that's God speaking to you next time when you hear that say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God gives Samuel his commission. When we go through the prophets, I don't know if you have trouble remembering which prophets are which and which prophets are speaking to whom and that kind of a thing. I found something recently that helped me out. There are two prophets in the Bible that they did their work while the people were under captivity, and that's Daniel and Ezekiel. We refer to that as exilic because the people were in exile. They are the exilic uh, prophets. There are three that were uh, prophets to Judah after their exile, and those are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All the rest are pre-exilic. Okay? So all the rest of the prophets are pre-exilic. Ezekiel and Daniel, you can remember those, are the exilic prophets, the ones who went to, to uh, Israel with a message while they were in captivity. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those were the ones who came after. Everybody else were prior to captivity. So I want to look at Isaiah as a prophet. Let's turn to Isaiah 6, 8. So we know this is a prophet before the exile. The people are living in the land that God has called them to. They've been back and forth a few times in getting there, but now they have been there, they've been established, they've had kings and and, uh, and, and people have lived there for generations, but God is warning them because this may not last if they continue in their behavior. So Isaiah 6, 8. God is looking for a messenger to warn the people about this. And Isaiah writes, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's the voice of God. And then I, Isaiah, says, here I am. Send me. And God gives him a message to send to the people. He needs a witness. Isaiah says, here I am. God wants to keep them in this land, but is warning them that it is not likely to continue if they continue on in their uh, current path. Now I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to go to Ezekiel again. He is an exile prophet. He is an exile prophet. And in Ezekiel 22, God is describing uh, some of the difficulties, some of the problems that he's having with the people. He says, "...her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood, to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divinity, uh, uh, seeing vanity, and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not even spoken." The people of the land have used oppression and have exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yes, they have oppressed the stranger woefully. In Ezekiel 22.30, God says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge to stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. He found Abraham, he found Moses, he found Jacob, he found Joseph, he found people to do what he needed to do to accomplish his will. But here, as he speaks through Ezekiel, he looks for a man among them that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap. i found none. When God was ready to destroy the world, because it had gotten so bad that the hearts and the minds and the thoughts of men were only evil continually, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God found someone to stand in the gap. When God was so fed up with the people of Israel, who he led miraculously out of Egypt through the Red Sea, fed them with manna, all these things, and they kept turning against him and kept turning to other gods and kept arguing and complaining to the point where God said, I'm going to destroy them all. Moses stood in the gap and prayed for intervention for his people. Daniel... Got on his knees and prayed for all of his people, for the entire nation. God had people who would stand in the gap. But he also had people who didn't. And Jonah, as we read in our scripture reading here this morning, was one of those who did not wish to stand in the gap. He wished to run away from the call. He wished to run away from, From the challenge that God has put before him. There is a, in our culture, there is something that uh, some people with degrees have referred to as partner abandonment. A 2009 study published in the journal Cancer found that a married woman diagnosed with a serious disease is six times more likely to be divorced or separated than a man with a similar diagnosis. Here's what that means, men. When our wives get really sick, we walk away. The study showed that the opposite was true for women. When we men get really sick, our wives stick with us. That's just really sad. Thank you, women, wives. What if the Doolittle Raiders had turned their backs? What if they had walked away? What if when they called for volunteers to go on this suicide mission, they kept their hands in their pockets and looked at their toes of their shoes? You know that raid changed the outcome of the war. You can do your own studies on it, but it figured into Midway. It figured into what the Japanese naval fleet had to do in response to protect their own homeland. Those men who went on that raid understood that the mission was bigger than they were. The calling was more important than the call. In Isaiah 58, turn there with me. Isaiah 58. God is talking about how the people are are doing things uh, for Him, but they're just ritual, like fasting. And they're not accomplishing what He really wants. So starting in verse 6, God says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free? And that you break every yoke Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? And God says in the next verses, he's calling for how he wants people to respond to him. He says, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard or your reward. And verse 9, and then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he, the Lord, will say, here I am. God's setting the example for us. When we maintain a good relationship with, with him, he is ready to respond when we call on him. And you know what the truth is? He's ready to respond even when we don't. Revelation 3.20 is a verse you know well if you don't recognize it by Scripture or by that, by that number. You recognize it when I say, I stand at the door and knock. Now, is that, is that God in communion with someone who is responding well to Him or is that God waiting for someone to respond to Him? That's God waiting for the person who is not answering the door, is it not? But God is being patient. He's saying, I stand at the door and knock. What's the first word of that passage? What is it? Before I. Behold. Does anybody have a different word in your, in your Bible? Revelation 3.20. See if you have a different word for behold. Because it's translated many different ways in many different Bibles. Revelation 3.20. Anybody have anything different? Shout it out. Nothing. Everybody's got behold? It is sometimes translated lo. It is sometimes translated look always with an exclamation mark. It's a, it, it, is, it is that exclamation kind of thing. Behold, look, see, it is translated. Here, it is translated in some versions. Listen, it is translated in some versions. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. And in some versions it says, here I am. I'm standing at your door and knocking. God is there saying, here I am, even when we are not setting the example for us. Thankfully for us, Doolittle's men didn't hesitate at the call. And thankfully for us, Abraham and Joseph and David and Daniel and Paul and so many others didn't hesitate when they were called. They said, here I am. Use me as you would. I want to go back to Ellen White's words, the same ones I read early on. But instead of focusing on it being Abraham, I want you to put your name in it. This is being written about you personally. It was no light test that was brought upon you. No small sacrifice was required of you. There were strong ties to bind you to your country, to your kindred, to your home, but you didn't hesitate to obey the call. You had no question to ask concerning the land of promise, whether the soil was fertile, whether the climate was healthful, whether the country afforded agreeable surroundings, would afford opportunities for amassing wealth. God had spoken, and his servant must obey. The happiest place on earth for you was the place where God would have you to be. There's a poem on this topic by a fellow named Daniel Schutte. I'm reading just the first verse. I, the Lord of sea and sky, I have heard my people cry. All who dwell in dark and sin, my hand will save. I who made the stars of night, I will make their darkness bright. Who will bear my light to them? Whom shall I send? Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. God asks, whom shall I send? And your answer is. Almighty God. Help us to shed our own worries and frailties and lacks of confidence. When you call us, help us to be as faithful as these men that we've studied and say, here I am. When you're looking for someone to send, to stand in the gap, to be your spokesperson to be your helping hand, to be the example of love and care in a community or to someone who's suffering. Help us to be the willing respondents. Here I am. Send me, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.